0: welcome to season three of come follow me deep dive doctrine and covenants edition this podcast takes a section-by-section approach to the scriptures that are assigned to the come follow me curriculum of the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints my name is barry hillam and you can visit my website barryhillam.com to make contact and find new content i hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you please consider sharing it with family and friends and submitting a review on iTunes. In each episode, you will hear introductory remarks from many reliable sources, a short flyover summary of the Doctrine and Covenants section in question, followed by a complete verse-by-verse reading of the text that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of Scripture, trusted scholars, and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Doctrine and Covenants, Section 4 The Call to Labor, Joseph Smith, Sr. Well, this is the first of several sections of the Doctrine and Covenants that will serve a similar purpose and actually share similar language. Otten and Caldwell, in their book, will use the title Called to Serve, followed by the name of the recipient of that call for this section, Section 4 and for Sections 11, 12, 14, 15, and 16. There's repetition then in each of these sections, which is something worth talking about before we move into Section 4, where we encounter this unique language of missionary service for the first time. So let's appeal to Susan Black for just a moment, who has commented upon the repetition that we find across these sections in the Doctrine and Covenants. She has said, it cannot be a coincidence that the first contemporary of Joseph Smith mentioned by name in the Doctrine and Covenants was his father, Joseph Smith Sr., we'll talk about that more in just a few moments. Likewise, it cannot be circumstantial that many of the expressions, admonitions, and qualifications given to Joseph Smith Sr. were restated to others called to the work of the Lord. Oliver Cowdery in section 6 of the Doctrine and Covenants, Hiram Smith in section 11 Joseph Knight Sr. in section 12, and David Whitmer in section 14. David O. McKay, in noting the repetitious nature of the qualifications for being called to the work, concluded that those so-called had, quote, "...not the possession of wealth, not social distinction, not political preferment, not military achievement, not nobility of birth, but a desire to serve God with all your heart, mind, and strength." Spiritual qualities that contribute to nobility of soul. Unquote. Mission presidents encourage missionaries to memorize Section four and to contemplate the qualifications needed to carry the gospel message of Jesus Christ and to recommit their heart, mind, and strength to the service of God. Well this revelation was given to Joseph Smith on February of eighteen twenty nine. Before discussing the backstory Of Doctrine and Covenants Section 4 further, I'd like to add some of my own thoughts. I think it's interesting to note that when this revelation was given, Joseph Smith was still in the midst of his probationary period with Moroni, and that, of course, was after losing Mormon's Book of Lehi in the summer of 1828. Consider this the Book of Mormon was not yet translated, the priesthood had not yet been restored, and the church had yet to be organized when Doctrine and Covenants Section 4 was given in February of 1829. Yet, Section 4 still stands as the guiding and calibrating document for those who gather Israel today. In fact, we can accurately assume that it will be referenced and recited by thousands of full-time missionaries throughout the world on this day, the very day of this recording. I certainly remember reciting Section 4 with regularity on my mission, I remember doing it in companionship study and in district meetings and zone conferences and even in mission-wide meetings. To me, at that time, it seemed that Doctrine and Covenants section 4 was a natural extension and a summary, really, of the entire missionary curriculum that we studied and taught from. In reality, however, Doctrine and Covenants section 4 predated all of those materials. When Joseph received this revelation, there was no church per se. Instead, the receipt of this revelation was a foundational piece of its restoration. In a sense, then, it might be appropriate to say that the church has actually grown into the standard set by Section 4 ever since that revelation was given in February of 1829. Well, perhaps the same can be said for each of us and our own foundational revelations in our lives the pattern set forth in Doctrine and Covenants section four is the same pattern really that plays out in all of our lives as we grow into the principle of revelation, which is a phrase that Joseph Smith once used. As we seek guidance from God, he does indeed speak to us. Remember President Nelson's recent comment in General Conference, does the Lord want to speak to you? Yes. So the Lord has a personalized way of telling each of us through revelation that there is a marvelous work for us to perform. Remember how Moroni told Joseph in uh, Joseph Smith history that God had a work for him to do. And remember also how the Lord told Moses in Moses chapter one, verse six, that I have a work for thee, Moses, my son. So the Lord does do this for each of us personally, giving us a sense through revelation that there is a work for us to perform. Elder John C. Pingree has a beautiful conference talk that discusses this. Well then, after the Lord does that for each of us, through the influence of the Holy Ghost, he regularly speaks to us by prompting us to seek the attributes that will make us worthy of that work. And again, that is the pattern or the process that is shown in Doctrine and Covenants section 4. I think, additionally, it's interesting to note that this process of personally growing into the principle of revelation is formalized for each of us in our patriarchal blessing. In that customized and personal and foundational document that each of us has the privilege of receiving at the hand of an appointed patriarch, it, similar to Doctrine and Covenants section 4, is a recorded revelation in which a standard is set for each of us that we spend a lifetime growing into. When considering this, then, perhaps Doctrine and Covenants section 4 could be considered as a patriarchal blessing for the restored Church of Jesus Christ. If that is the case, then it may be no coincidence that it was directed to the first patriarch of the Church, Joseph Smith Sr. Well, some thoughts to consider, and in saying that, of course, I'm not declaring that section 4 is the patriarchal blessing (laughs) to the Church, but it can be likened to one, I think and uh, elicit some several interesting thoughts and impressions, I think, as we consider the course of our own lives. So we've learned that Section 4 was given in February of 1829, so far, and the place setting for this revelation was Harmony, Pennsylvania. And even more specifically, this would have been in the home of Joseph and Emma in Harmony. Let's consider that home for just a moment, and how it plays into what is to come, and uh, the role that it has played or this place has played so far in what we've learned. So remember that Joseph married Emma in January 18th of 1827, and they first moved to the Smith home after being married um, in Manchester Township of New York at the invitation of their parents. And they lived there until Joseph acquired the plates in September of 1827. So it's after those events... Uh, a few months after those events, that Joseph and Emma moved to Harmony Township in December of 1827. And that was after Martin Harris had gifted them money to help Joseph settle his debts and then for them to make the 130-mile journey to their new home in Harmony. Well, a replica of the Joseph and Emma Smith home in Harmony can be visited to this day. It sits a few miles away from the town of Oakland, Pennsylvania, And Oakland is across the Susquehanna River from the slightly larger town uh, that is named after the river, the town of Susquehanna. So one can drive from Joseph and Emma's first home uh, to the Joseph Smith Senior Home, just outside of Manchester, New York, in about two and a half hours. And the most well-traveled route today between those two destinations is a highway that runs to the north from Harmony, or again today, the Oakland or Susquehanna region, to Syracuse, New York and then west to Manchester or the Palmyra region. So the Finger Lakes region of New York prevents a direct diagonal uh, kind of northwest passage between these two destinations. As we look at these two places on the map and consider the route between them, it certainly causes us, I think, to appreciate the effort um, that was involved in Joseph's many trips between these two places. We can think about the way that he left Manchester as a young man, to um, board with Isaac Hale in Harmony, and that, of course, is when he worked for Josiah Stoll, and then as he courted Emma and traveled uh, between Manchester and Harmony. And then, of course, we can remember Joseph's long journey that we learned about uh, in Doctrine and Covenant Section 3 from Harmony to Manchester in July of 1828 when he accomplished the final 20 miles of that trip on foot and walked through the night so that he could meet with Martin Harris and learn about the 116 manuscript pages. So this is a substantial journey between these two destinations. We can think about that as, as we think about Martin Harris's travels between those two places. And uh, it seems that even Lucy came with Martin to Joseph and Emma's home in Harmony at, at one point. So it is this same trip that Joseph Smith Sr. took between his home in Manchester, New York, and to Joseph and Emma's home in Harmony, Pennsylvania, that provides the backstory for Section 4. And we'll learn more about that backstory in just a moment, but I'd first like to read this short section from a page on the church website that describes Joseph and Emma's Harmony home in more detail. And this is a short article that's called Joseph and Emma Smith's Home by Mark L. Staker and Curtis Ashton. And this is just a portion of the article. It says, As a newlywed couple in 1827, Joseph and Emma Smith, like many couples before them and after them, lived in their parents' homes. They spent time with Joseph's parents first, near the hill where the Golden Plates were buried. Shortly after Joseph was entrusted with the plates, the couple moved back to Emma's hometown of Harmony, Pennsylvania, and stayed briefly with her parents before moving into a neighboring home of their own. It was in that small home on the Susquehanna River that much of the Book of Mormon was translated— Many early revelations were received, and the process of priesthood restoration was begun. The house that became Joseph and Emma's home first belonged to Emma's brother, Jesse. In 1815, Jesse married Elizabeth Ann McCune, the daughter of a neighboring farmer. In preparation for his marriage, Jesse purchased part of his father Isaac's land on the banks of the Susquehanna River and next to the McCune property. Jesse built his home on that land, and for the next ten years, he and Mary improved the home and farm. Their family grew in that time, and by 1825, the couple was expecting their seventh child. By then, Jesse was working with his brothers in a promising sawmill venture on the other side of the Susquehanna River, so he sold his farm back to his father and moved his family into a larger home closer to his work. Jesse's brother David, who had recently married, moved into the house his brother had vacated. The year that Jesse moved across the river was also the year that Joseph Smith first came to Susquehanna County and met the Hale family. Joseph was immediately attracted to Emma Hale and courted her through the fall of 1825 and into the following winter. Despite objections from Emma's father, Isaac Hale, the couple married on January 18th of 1827. Joseph took his new bride to live with his parents on their farm between Manchester and Palmyra, New York, more than 100 miles away. After living in New York for eight months, so the newlyweds, Joseph and Emma, are living again in their father's home between Manchester and Palmyra, Uh, Emma and Joseph then visited Isaac Hale. Uh, So they went back to Emma's hometown and made that journey that kind of goes southeast around the Finger Lakes. Uh, They visited Isaac Hale, who invited them to come and live near his residence, just as Emma's siblings had done. Although they made no formal written agreement, Joseph Smith accepted his father-in-law's invitation and made plans to move. So this article goes on and uh, tells us that approximately 70% of the Book of Mormon was translated in this home, as well as several other Doctrine and Covenants revelations, and of course other significant events as well. So that's just a short consideration of this very special and significant place, this little home after they struck out to live on their own in December of 1827. So when we think of all the drama of their uh, first baby passing away, and uh, Emma translating the very early portions of the Book of Mormon, and Martin translating Mormon's Book of Lehi, and all of the sturm and drang of that time, the, the place setting for all of that was this little home in Harmony. So coming back again to Section 4, this, of course, was given through Joseph Smith, Jr., but as we have um, mentioned already, it was directed to Joseph Smith, Sr. We've already established that Joseph Smith, Sr. will uh, go on to be the first patriarch of the Church, and we'll learn about that later. But he was a remarkable man, and here's some thoughts about Joseph Smith, Sr. from Susan Easton Black. She says, young Joseph Smith was promised by Angel Moroni in September 1823 that his father would believe every word you say to him. And of course, we remember that statement by Moroni and that comment that made us wonder about the timing of when Joseph shared his vision with his father. Uh, But Black goes on to say, why the surety of that promise that Joseph's father would believe every word? Joseph Smith Sr. was known by name centuries before his birth, and had been foreordained to a great work in the latter days. We can read about that in Second Nephi chapter 3, when Lehi is blessing his son Joseph. After hearing his son's remarkable recitation of the visit of angel Moroni, Father Smith declared, My son, be not disobedient to this heavenly vision. Where many fathers might have lacked the humility to follow their son, Joseph Smith Sr. never sought prominence over young Joseph. He was supportive of his son's prophetic calling, and even willing to suffer persecution to follow his teachings. He was privileged to be one of the eight witnesses of the Book of Mormon, who saw the plates and the engravings, all of which has the appearance of ancient work and of curious workmanship, as it says in the testimony of eight witnesses at the beginning of the Book of Mormon. On the day of the organization of the church, Father Smith was baptized. Of his testimony, Father Smith declared, "'I have never denied the Lord. The Lord has often visited me in visions and dreams.'" and has brought me with my family through many afflictions, and I this day thank his holy name. Well, having taken all of that in so far, let's read the section heading to section 4, which says this was a revelation given through Joseph Smith the prophet to his father, Joseph Smith Sr., at Harmony, Pennsylvania, February 1829. So the cast of characters, or the people involved in this section, of course, are Joseph Smith Jr. and his father, Joseph Smith Sr., Now moving to the origin story of Doctrine and Covenants section 4, as it is presented by Stephen C. Harper in his book Making Sense of the Doctrine and Covenants. He says the American Revolution made the world of Joseph Smith's father more free and also more uncertain. Unlike his Congregationalist ancestors, he did not belong to an established church. His best efforts to provide for his growing family failed repeatedly. When he went to bed at night, Joseph's father dreamed anxious dreams— In one dream, he grew tired from walking a long distance in search of something. An angel showed him a beautiful garden, but Father Smith awoke before he could learn what the experience meant. In another dream, he was going to be judged. He found himself locked out of a building. Fear overcame him, and he felt hopeless. As he cried out for help in the name of Jesus Christ, strength returned, the door opened, and Father Smith awoke. Shortly after moving his family yet again, this time to a new farm in Manchester, New York, he dreamed he met a peddler who promised to tell him the one thing he lacked. Father Smith jumped up to get some paper and awoke before learning the secret. Though he toiled hard and wanted badly to know God's will, Joseph Smith's father had a gnawing feeling that something vital was missing in his life. As his understanding of Joseph's mission grew, Father Smith began to believe that his answers would come from his son. Early in 1829, Joseph Sr. visited his son in Harmony, now, as Harper points out, known as Oakland, Pennsylvania, and received the anxiously anticipated answers he had sought for so long as Joseph received the following revelation for him recorded in Doctrine and Covenants section 4. Here is an introduction and timeline associated with Doctrine and Covenants section 4 as it's presented in the Doctrine and Covenants student manual. It says, Joseph Smith Sr. was among the first to hear the accounts of the heavenly manifestations that had been given to his son Joseph. He became a steadfast believer in his son and a defender of Joseph's divinely appointed mission. In January of 1829, Joseph Smith Sr. and his son Samuel traveled from their home near Palmyra, New York to Harmony, Pennsylvania to visit Joseph Smith Jr. and his wife Emma. During this visit, Joseph Smith Sr. asked for a revelation concerning his possible role in God's work. The revelation that was given in response described the essential attributes a person must develop in order to be called to God's work. After returning to his home, Joseph Smith Sr. and his wife Lucy invited the schoolteacher Oliver Cowdery to board with them. When Oliver inquired about Joseph Smith Jr. and the rumors he'd heard about a gold Bible, Joseph Smith Sr. was initially reluctant to provide details to Oliver, knowing that many others in the community had ridiculed his son. However, he finally shared some of the facts regarding the Book of Mormon plates and Joseph's assignment to translate them. The call to the work that Joseph Smith Sr. received in Doctrine and Covenants section 4 may have given him the courage to speak more openly with Oliver Cowdery about the plates. So, another very interesting kind of proximate consequence of that revelation is is given in that introduction in the student manual, suggesting then that it emboldened Joseph Smith Sr. to speak more openly to Oliver Cowdery, which of course then led to such an important relationship between Oliver and Joseph Smith Jr. Here are several timeline entries that are provided by the student manual. The first is in January of 1829, when Joseph Smith Sr. visited Joseph and Emma in Harmony, Pennsylvania. Then there's February of 1829, when Doctrine and Covenants IV was received. In May of 1829, Joseph and Emma Smith received visits from Hiram Smith and from Joseph Knight Sr. And then in May of 1829, Doctrine and Covenants Sections 11 and 12 were received. In about June of 1829, Joseph and Oliver moved to Fayette, New York to continue the translation of the Book of Mormon. And in that same month, June of 1829, Doctrine and Covenants Sections 14, 15, and 16 were received. Then in late June of 1829, the three witnesses and the eight witnesses viewed the golden plates. There are actually two Doctrine and Covenant student manuals that are available through the church educational system. Up to this point, I've only pulled from the newest one, but here's a historical background that is provided by the older one. It says the Prophet Joseph Smith wrote, After I had obtained the above revelation, meaning Doctrine and Covenant section 3, both the plates and the Urim and Thummim were taken from me again. But in a few days they were returned to me when I inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said this unto me. And that's when Doctrine and Covenant section 10 came. I did not, however, go immediately to translating, but went to laboring with my hands upon a small farm, which I had purchased of my wife's father. So now, of course, we can envision this home that Joseph has purchased from Isaac Hale that's on the bank of the Susquehanna River. That was owned by Emma's brother, Jesse, and for a short time later, her brother, David. So Joseph continues, In the month of February 1829, my father came to visit us, at which time I received the following revelation for him. Referring there, of course, to section 4, and that's the history that's given in History of the Church. The manual continues now, Even though this revelation was given for the prophet's father, it is addressed to all people who would serve God. Elder Joseph Fielding Smith pointed out that while only seven verses long, it contains sufficient counsel and instruction for a lifetime of study. No one has yet mastered it. It was not intended as a personal revelation to Joseph Smith, but to be of benefit to all who desire to embark in the service of God. It is a revelation to each member of the church, especially to all who hold the priesthood, Perhaps there is no other revelation in all our scriptures that embodies greater instruction pertaining to the manner of qualification of members of the church for the service of God, and in such condensed form than this revelation. It is as broad, as high, and as deep as eternity. No elder of the church is qualified to teach in the church or carry the message of salvation to the world until he has absorbed, at least in part, this heaven-sent instruction. Here is Robertson and Garrett's background to Doctrine and Covenants section 4 in their commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants. They write, The Urim and Thummim and the gold plates had been taken away from Joseph Smith in July of 1828. According to Lucy Mack Smith's account, the sacred items were returned to Joseph two months later on the 22nd of September, exactly one year from the time they had originally been entrusted to his care. But Joseph did not proceed again with the translation at that time. After the loss of the 116 pages, he was not permitted to rely on Martin Harris, and he had no other scribe but Emma who had almost died in childbirth that summer. On the 25th of August, Joseph had purchased 13 acres of land from his father-in-law Isaac Hale and began to farm it since he needed to support his family and did not know at that time how long the Lord might withhold his prophetic privileges. When the plates were returned, Joseph, having no regular scribe and no other means of support, continued to work his little farm. By then, his wife's family had rejected him and Emma, and there was not much support available to them. Joseph Knight Sr. described the Smith family's situation during the winter of 1828 and 1829. He said, Now he could not translate but little, being poor and having nobody to write for him but his wife, and she could not do much and take care of her house, and he being poor and having no means to live but work, I let him have some little provisions and a pair of shoes and three dollars in money to help him a little. In February of 1829, some of Joseph's family, including his father Joseph Smith Sr., traveled from Manchester to Harmony to visit with Joseph and Emma. During his visit, the prophet received Doctrine and Covenants Section 4 on behalf of his father. Many passages of scripture, such as Ruth's Entreaty of Naomi, which says, Entreat me not to leave thee, or to return from following after thee. For whither thou goest, I will go. And where thou lodgest, I will lodge. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. Where thou diest, I will die, and there will I be buried. The Lord do so to me, and more also, if aught but death part thee and me. Or Psalm 23, which, of course, is the Lord is my shepherd psalm. So many passages of scripture such as these so precisely fit their occasion and so aptly express the moment that they become classic formulations for all those who later find themselves in similar circumstances. Such an expression is section 4. This revelation for Joseph Smith Sr. so simply and movingly calls him to the Lord's work, and so carefully states the virtues necessary for those who would perform his work successfully, that it has become the classic and archetypical call to service in this dispensation. Although this section is often used in the context of missionary work, it was given through Joseph to his father, who was not being called on a mission. It can therefore be applied to anyone who serves in the kingdom of God, and not just to full-time missionaries. Well, here are two additional historical views. They will cover many of the details that we've already learned, but I think they're well worth reading because they'll also shed additional light on... uh, The historical background to this section. The first comes from Revelations in Context, the stories behind the sections of the Doctrine and Covenants. It says, During his visit to his son in Harmony, Joseph Smith Sr. asked for a revelation concerning his own role in the Restoration. The young prophet thus received one of his earliest revelations for another individual. When the revelation was later copied in preparation for publication, the following headline was added, a revelation to Joseph, the father of the seer, he desired to know what the Lord had for him to do, and this is what he received as follows. The short revelation, now Doctrine and covenant section 4, is full of rich scriptural language from the Bible and Book of Mormon, anticipating a marvelous work, and listing the attributes of those who choose to embark in the service of God. Soon after returning to Manchester, Joseph Sr. agreed to welcome as a boarder at his home a schoolteacher named Oliver Cowdery. Joseph Sr. hesitated when Cowdery, who had heard rumors about Joseph Jr.'s visions and the plates, began to pepper him with questions. Father Smith may have been reluctant due to the harassment his family had received from neighbors and local clergy. Whatever the reason for his initial hesitation, he yielded to the revelations mandate and served as a faithful witness to Joseph Smith's early visions. About this same time, Joseph Smith resumed his work on the translation, assisted by Emma, his brother Samuel, and Martin Harris, each acting briefly as scribes. In early April of 1829, Oliver Cowdery, his interest now piqued by his conversations with Joseph Sr., traveled to Harmony. Samuel Smith accompanied Oliver on the journey and introduced him to Joseph, Oliver felt in his very bones that it is the will of the Lord that I should go and that there is a work for me to do in this thing. He quickly became a full-time scribe for Joseph. With this much-needed help, work on the translation moved forward at a significantly accelerated pace. Now, the Joseph Smith Papers website does show a fascinating handwritten document uh, that is likely uh, to have been made in Edward Partridge's hand. And it's a copy of Section 4. It was probably made sometime between December of 1830 and the spring of 1831. And so that can be seen uh, on the Joseph Smith Papers website. A historical introduction to that document is given there as well, and I'll read that here. It says, Joseph Smith dictated this revelation for his father, Joseph Smith Sr., one of his earliest and staunchest supporters. When John Whitmer copied this text into Revelation Book 1, he included this heading, A revelation to Joseph, the father of the seer, he desired to know what the Lord had for him to do, and this is what he received as follows. Revelation Book 1 initially gave the date of 1828. An unidentified scribe wrote a 9 over the 8, thus changing the date from 1828 to 1829, apparently correcting a scribal error. The index to Revelation Book 1 also lists 1829 as the date of the revelation. Sidney Rigdon, likely in late 1831, added February to the heading in Revelation Book 1 to further specify the date. The copy featured below is a more complete and probably an earlier version than that inscribed in Revelation Book 1, which is missing the page that includes the final portion of this revelation. The version below is in the handwriting of Edward Partridge and was kept by him, Partridge dated the document to 1829, a date also used in Joseph Smith's history. Joseph Knight Sr., another early supporter of Joseph Smith, wrote that Joseph Sr. and Samuel Smith stopped at his home in Colville, New York, in January 1829, before going on to visit Joseph Smith and Emma Smith. I told him, meaning I told Joseph Smith Sr., that they had travailed far enough, Knight wrote, and I would go with my sleigh and take them down to Harmony tomorrow. So remember, and we've got the sense of this already, this was a a long journey, very arduous journey. So Joseph Knight wants to make this journey possible. He then says, I went down and found them well, and they were glad to see us. We conversed about many things. In the morning, I gave the old man a half a dollar and Joseph a little money to buy paper to translate. Joseph Smith had apparently not translated since June of 1828, and Knight's provision of paper may have allowed him to resume translation. Within weeks of Knight's visit, Joseph Smith began translating again, with Emma, Samuel, and Martin Harris each acting briefly as scribe. Dictated shortly before the translation work resumed, this revelation spoke of a marvelous work about to come forth, and added that the field is white already to harvest. These phrases, also used in several Joseph Smith revelations in the spring of 1829, invoked a sense of urgency and an impending spiritual harvest. Though addressed to Joseph Smith Sr., This revelation was written as if it could apply to all who read it. The degree to which Joseph Smith Sr. acted upon this revelation is unknown, but his call to the work may have had a significant immediate impact when he returned to Palmyra, New York, where Oliver Cowdery was boarding at his house. Joseph Sr. and Lucy Mack Smith had met Cowdery when he began teaching school in the Manchester, New York district late in the fall of 1828. Lucy wrote that although Cowdery had questioned Joseph Sr. about the gold plates, He did not succeed in eliciting any information for a long time. This revelation may have prompted Joseph Sr. to share a sketch of the facts which related to the plates with Cowdery, who became convinced that he had been called by God to assist Joseph Smith as his scribe. Well, that brings us now to the text of section 4, which is composed of seven verses, and the first four of those verses introduces a marvelous work that is about to come forth among the children of men. And then the matter of valiant service is discussed in this marvelous work and how it will have the effect of saving those who minister in it. Verses 5 and 6 list critical godly attributes that will qualify these ministers for this work and for the ministry. I think it's quite interesting and somewhat ironic that we have such a definitive listing of godly attributes here in section 4. And yet, we know that this section was given during such a difficult time for Joseph, during such a downtime, where the ability to translate had been taken from him for a season, and he was kind of on probation. Now, in saying that, we know that in September of the previous year, the plates and translators were given back to Joseph, but it still, of course, was a very difficult hiatus for Joseph for a variety of reasons. And it was a time, no doubt, where he had to contemplate these very same virtues, these same godly attributes, and knew that it um, devolved upon him to develop them as well. The final verse of this section, verse 7, talks about the way in which the things of God must be sought after. And it does so by using the very familiar expression, Ask and ye shall receive, knock and it shall be opened unto you. Well, with that summary, let's return now to verse one and begin a reading of this short section. And of course, with each verse of this section, there really is a lot of wonderful commentary. So verse one, Now behold, a marvelous work is about to come forth among the children of men. Robinson and Garrett write that the phrase marvelous work refers to the revelation of the fullness of the gospel, the restoration of the priesthood, the organization of the true church, the gathering of Israel, and the establishment of Zion and the Millennial Kingdom. So that's a wonderful and comprehensive definition of the phrase marvelous work. Then they say this revelation was a prophecy at the time it was given, and today we are seeing much of it fulfilled. The church continues to grow in a marvelous way throughout the world as the gospel goes forth to cover the earth. The Doctrine and Covenant student manual says, Anciently, the Lord prophesied that there would be an apostasy in the last days. Therefore, he would proceed to do a marvelous work among this people, even a marvelous work and a wonder, which is taken from Isaiah 29, verse 14. The wording in Doctrine and Covenants section 4, verse 1 indicates that at the time this revelation was given, Isaiah's prophecy had not yet been fulfilled. President David O. McKay observed the following about this verse. He said, when this revelation was given to the prophet Joseph Smith, he was only 23 years of age. The Book of Mormon was not yet published. No man had been ordained to the priesthood. The church was not organized, yet the statement was made and written without qualification that a marvelous work was about to come forth among the children of men. Several additional revelations were given before the organization of the church that contained similar language as that found in Doctrine and Covenants section 4. We can see it in section 6, 11, 12, and 14, for example. Smith and Sojall have written in their Doctrine and Covenants commentary, The Book of Mormon is a marvelous work, no matter from what angle it is viewed. It was marvelous because it was brought to light by immortal hands. It was marvelous that a young man, with only a limited school education, and poor as far as this world's riches go, should be called upon to translate and publish it. It is marvelous in the story it tells, the teachings it gives, and the prophecies it contains. It is marvelous in the effects it has produced— However, the marvelous work is not confined to the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, but has reference to all that pertains to the restoration of the dispensation of the fullness of times. Joseph Fielding Smith has written, in his Church History and Modern Revelation, More than 700 years before the birth of Jesus Christ, the Lord spoke through Isaiah of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and the restoration of the Gospel. Isaiah, by prophecy, spoke of the restoration of the new and everlasting covenant— and the Lord performing a marvelous work and a wonder. This marvelous work is the restoration of the church and the gospel with all the power and authority, keys and blessings which pertain to this great work for the salvation of the children of men. All who have given diligent attention to the church and the great things it has accomplished and is accomplishing must feel and know that the word of the Lord is fulfilled even though many of the marvels are yet future. I think as we look very broadly across a timeline that extends from Isaiah's day forward to our day, it's quite interesting to see how he used this phrase in Isaiah chapter 29. And then it was um, certainly something that Nephi was fond of and that he quoted in 2 Nephi chapter 27. And then here comes this phrase again at the very beginning of this dispensation. It's uh, such an appropriate beginning to section 4 When we think of it in that context susan easton black asks this important question uh, relative to the phrase marvelous work she asks, does this refer solely to the coming forth of the book of mormon or does it include other restoration events a marvelous work she writes is an obvious reference to the coming forth of the book of mormon but it is not limited to that sacred scripture the marvelous work also includes other events of the restoration revelations, priesthood keys, organization of the church, and fullness of the gospel. A marvelous work is best illustrated by using harvest imagery, such as a field of wheat, no longer green, but a brilliant gold, which almost seems dazzling white in the summer sunshine. Such a sight signified that the time of the harvest was at hand. Similar harvest imagery appears throughout the Doctrine and Covenants. For example, the world is ripening in section 18 verse 6, They shall be gathered in, in section 29, verse 8. The rebellious shall be cut off, section 64, verse 35. Bound in bundles to await the day of burning, section 88, verse 94. Or sifted as chaff, section 52, verse 12. The righteous shall joy in the fruit of your labors, section 6, verse 31. And shall be laden with sheaves upon your back, section 31, verse 5. Then the promise he that is faithful shall be kept and blessed with much fruit before the harvest is over, section 52, verse 34. And with all of that imagery and uh, Black's beautiful way of bringing all of those passages together in the Doctrine and Covenants we can, of course also think about Zenos' great olive tree allegory and the description of harvests and fruit that can be found there. Verse two, therefore, O ye that embark in the service of God, See that you serve Him with all your heart, might, mind, and strength, that ye may stand blameless before God at the last day. Robinson and Garrett have written, In this verse, the Lord indicates His expectations for us who serve in His kingdom. We are to serve Him with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. Each of these words denotes an important part of our being. The heart indicates the emotions and feelings we have. Might represents abilities and gifts given to us. Mind represents our mental capacities. And strength deals with physical and spiritual abilities. In other words, if we are to serve God, we are to serve him with all of our capacities. Only then can we give an accounting to our Father in heaven that would allow us to stand blameless before him. And when Robinson and Garrett say that we are expected to serve God with all our capacities, they referenced um, Doctrine and Covenants section 64 verse 34, which says, Behold, the Lord requireth the heart and a willing mind and the willing and obedient shall eat the good of the land of Zion in these last days. Smith and Souljell have written, Because the Lord was about to begin a marvelous work among the children of men, he needed servants who were willing to give themselves entirely to that work, heart, might, mind, and strength, that is, affections, willpower, reasoning faculty, and physical strength. All must be dedicated to the service of the Lord in this latter-day work. The Doctrine and Covenant student manual says, While the revelation recorded in Doctrine and Covenants 4 was originally given to Joseph Smith Sr., it can be applied to any individual who desires to participate in God's work. President Joseph Fielding Smith wrote, This revelation is very short, only seven verses, but it contains sufficient counsel and instruction for a lifetime of study. Perhaps there is no other revelation in all our scriptures that embodies greater instruction pertaining to the manner of qualification of members of the church for the service of God, And in such condensed form than this revelation. It is as broad, as high, and as deep as eternity. Those who desire to serve God are required to give great personal effort, as explained by Elder Dallin H. Oakes. He said, We learn from this command that it is not enough to serve God with all our might and strength. He who looks into our hearts and knows our minds demands more than this. In order to stand blameless before God at the last day, we must also serve Him with all our heart and mind. Service with all our heart and mind is a high challenge for all of us. Such service must be free of selfish ambition. It must be motivated only by the pure love of Christ. Now finally, with respect to the phrase that ye may stand blameless, Joseph Fielding Smith has written in Church History and Modern Revelation, The preaching of the gospel should be done in the spirit of the utmost humility and perseverance. Missionaries are commanded not to idle away their time, but to give to the Lord their heart, and serve him with all their might, mind, and strength. Every missionary who goes forth is under the solemn obligation and pledge to bear testimony of the restoration of the gospel and witness of its truth. In doing this, he leaves all who hear him without excuse, and their sins are on their own heads. If he fails to do this, then he will not stand blameless before God at the last day. Verse 3, Therefore, if ye have desires to serve God, ye are called to the work. Robinson and Garrett explained the use of the word called in this verse by saying that called is used here in its less technical sense. In fact, the church hadn't even been organized yet. We do not need to wait for a vision or other authorization to engage in God's work. Although some service in the kingdom requires special callings, keys, or ordinations, much Christian service simply needs a willing heart and nothing more. Every member who desires to serve the Lord can be a missionary— Every member who feels Christ's love can share it with those who need it. All those who feel a desire to be a witness for Christ, whether in word or deed. Verse 4. For behold, the field is white already to harvest. And lo, he that thrusteth in his sickle with his might, the same layeth up in store, that he perisheth not, but bringeth salvation to his soul. Are invited or called and encouraged to do so. President George Albert Smith once wrote, and this was in an October conference address in 1916, My understanding is that the most important mission that I have in this life is first to keep the commandments of God as they have been taught to me, and next to teach them to my father's children who do not understand them. It is not necessary for you to be called to go into the mission field in order to proclaim the truth. Begin on the man who lives next door by inspiring confidence in him by inspiring love in him for you because of your righteousness, and your missionary work has already begun. Verse four For behold, the field is white already to harvest, and lo he that thrusteth in his sickle with his might, the same layeth up in store that he perisheth not, but bringeth salvation to his soul. Robinson and Garrett explain why white is used as a colour for the field. They say wheat is green as it grows, but loses its colour as it matures, the paler the stalks, the closer they are to harvesting. Then we note that it says the field is white already to harvest. Robertson and Garrett say the word already here means now. The world is now ready to have the gospel preached to it, and people are prepared to receive it. The harvest is now ready. Joseph Fielding Smith has written, After the long night of apostasy, the world was filled with tradition, false doctrine, and and practice which were accepted as divine truth since they had come down for hundreds of years. Error was venerable. People worshipped, as their fathers before them, the doctrines of men, as Isaiah declared. It was no small labor to go forth to reap the field, for the wheat had to be nurtured and carefully watered that it might grow to the harvest. Yet there were many who were waiting to hear the message of the restoration. Choice spirits held in reserve to come forth in this great dispensation of the fullness of times. The need of laborers was great, but those available were few. Yet they went forth in the power the Lord gave them, and none could stay them. Woe be to the man who sets his hand to the sickle and is not diligent, or who leaves the unharvested field. The Lord says of him that he stands in danger and may perish and lose salvation to his soul. The Doctrine and Covenant student manual writes, with respect to this phrase, the field is white, already to harvest. During his mortal ministry, the Lord spoke to his disciples, and compared people who were prepared to receive the gospel to grain in the field, ready to be harvested. He said in John chapter 4, verse 35, "...lift up your eyes and look on the fields, for they are white, all ready to harvest." Grains such as wheat or barley change color as they grow. When the grain is young, it is green, but as it matures, it grows pale. When the grain is ready for harvesting, it can be described as white, This metaphor was used by the Lord in several Latter-day Revelations to indicate that people were prepared to be taught the gospel and gathered to the Lord and His Church. President Gordon B. Hinckley reminded church leaders and members that the field is still ready to be harvested. He said, "...I invite you to become a vast army with enthusiasm for this work, and a great overarching desire to assist the missionaries in the tremendous responsibility they have to carry the gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people." The field is white and ready to harvest. The Lord has repeatedly declared this. Shall we not take him at his word? Before the church was organized there was missionary work. It has continued ever since, notwithstanding the difficulties of many of the seasons through which our people have passed. Let us, every one, resolve within ourselves to arise to a new opportunity, a new sense of responsibility, a new shouldering of obligation to assist our Father in heaven in his glorious work, of bringing to pass the immortality and eternal life of his sons and daughters throughout the earth. President Hinckley said that in an April 1999 conference address called Find the Lambs and Feed the Sheep. Now, the Doctrine and Covenants Institute Manual or Student Manual says this with respect to the phrase He that thrusteth in his sickle bringeth salvation to his soul. A sickle is a large curved knife used to harvest grain. A reaper uses a sickle by either drawing it toward him or her to catch and cut the crop by swinging it against the base of the crop. Using this tool to harvest grain is a very labor-intensive and slow process. This metaphor describes the diligent work required to bring people to Jesus Christ. Elder Kevin R. Duncan of the Seventy provided additional insight about how the metaphor of a sickle can apply to missionary work. He said, "...the scriptures teach us to thrust in our sickle with all our might." I used a sickle constantly on our farm. For me, I learned it wasn't enough to only swing a sickle hard. The sickle also had to be sharp in order to cut. If it was dull, I'd spend a lot of effort swinging it without much success. On the farm, we kept a file on hand to sharpen our sickle every day. In missionary work, and indeed in all areas of life, we need to keep our spiritual sickles sharp so that we can achieve our own best potential— Reading scriptures daily, praying, and keeping all other commandments help us to stay sharp and useful. Elder Duncan wrote that in a New Era article in July of 2014 called Abandoned Seeds in Rocky Places. Now the student manual continues. In Doctrine and Covenants section 4 verse 4, the Lord promised that through our missionary labors we bring salvation to our own souls. President Henry B. Eyring of the First Presidency explained how this can happen. When you give your heart to inviting people to come unto Christ, your heart will be changed. By helping others come unto him, you will find that you have come unto him yourself. Verse 5, and now as we move into verses 5 and 6, we'll read this amazing listing of godly attributes that qualify servants for the ministry. So verse 5, And faith, hope, charity, and love, with an eye single to the glory of God, qualify him for the work. Robinson and Garrett write that charity here is not used merely as a synonym for love as it is in the King James Version. They say that the 1828 edition of Webster's Dictionary defines charity specifically as a brotherly predisposition, whereas the New Testament generally uses charity to mean love in a more general sense. Then, regarding this triad of faith, hope, and charity that are found in this verse, Robinson and Garrett have written, Note the order of faith, then hope, and then charity. It indicates that we must first have faith in Jesus Christ and His atonement. Then we will develop a hope or an assurance that the atonement applies to us personally and that we can receive the blessings of exaltation. Hope then leads to the marvelous gift of charity, the pure love of Christ that the Savior offers to each of us. His pure love expressed through the atonement can be enjoyed by each individual. With this gift, we can develop to the point where our eye is single to God's glory. Our focus will then be to serve the children of our Father in heaven. With this gift, we can be qualified for the work. And finally, Robinson and Garrett say this about the phrase, An eye single too. When our eyes are focused upon a single point, we see clearly. But when we try to focus on more than one object at one time, our vision is distorted. Jesus Christ taught this idea when he warned that no man can serve two masters. Verse 6 remember faith virtue knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness charity humility diligence We can see by the way that this is a similar listing of virtues to what is found in second Peter chapter 1 verses 5 through 8 which say and beside this giving all diligence add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another very similar passage can be found in Doctrine and Covenants section 107, verses 30-31, through which say, The decisions of these quorums, or either of them, are to be made in all righteousness, in holiness and lowliness of heart, meekness and long-suffering and in faith and virtue and knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness and charity, because the promise is, if these things abound in them, they shall not be unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. The student manual says, the Lord does not require a person to be physically gifted or intellectually brilliant to help with his work. Rather, he asks that the person strive to develop the Christ-like attributes listed in the Doctrine and Covenants section 4, verses 5-6. through President Dieter F. Uchtdorf taught what happens as we develop these attributes. He said, If it is your great desire to cultivate Christlike attributes of faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, and service, Heavenly Father will make you an instrument in His hands unto the salvation of many souls. Daniel Ludlow has written, The Lord provides two lists of characteristics that qualify a person for missionary work. The first list, faith, hope, charity, and love, appears to be general and inclusive, while the second list, faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, and diligence, seems to be more specific, although two terms, faith and charity, are common to both groups. Then Ludlow quotes President Joseph Fielding Smith when he said in a conference report in October of 1914, It is true we are engaged in a warfare, and all of us should be valiant warriors in the cause of which we are engaged. Our first enemy we will find within ourselves. It is a good thing to overcome that enemy first and bring ourselves into strict obedience to the principles of life and salvation which he has given to the world for the salvation of men." When we shall have conquered ourselves, it will be well for us to wage our war without, against false teachings, false doctrines, false customs, habits, and ways, against error and unbelief. Now finally we come to the last verse in this section, verse 7, which says, Ask, and ye shall receive. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. Amen. So that's such a beautiful way to end this section, and that familiar expression that we receive here at the end of section four ties it to other similar expressions by the Savior and other dispensations. The Doctrine and Covenant student manual explains that that section sits at the end of this revelation because Joseph Smith Sr. learned from this revelation that the Lord is willing to provide spiritual guidance and help to those who are called to the work. President Russell M. Nelson once wrote this, and this was in an October 2009 General Conference address called Ask, Seek, and Knock. He said, for each of you to receive revelation unique to your own needs and responsibilities, certain guidelines prevail. The Lord asks you to develop faith, hope, charity, and love with an eye single to the glory of God. Then with your firm faith, virtue, knowledge, temperance, patience, Brotherly kindness, godliness, charity, humility, and diligence. You may ask and you will receive. You may knock and it will be open unto you. Every Latter-day Saint may merit personal revelation. again, President Nelson wrote that in October of 2009. And now, as we have seen his ministry play out as our prophet over the last few years, we can see that that has been a central theme to his ministry well, Doctrine and Covenant section four is a beautiful section. It's one that I hope it's not inappropriate for me to put it this way, that the church itself has grown into. And it's one that we as servants in the Lord's Vineyard must grow into. How lucky and blessed we are to know what we know and to be engaged in this same work that Joseph Smith Sr. was called to so long ago in February of 1829. So with those thoughts in place, and with this reading this brings us to the end of doctrine and covenants section four thank you for listening to come follow me deep dive the doctrine and covenants edition if this podcast has benefited you please continue to share it with your family and friends i want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me to prepare for this episode They include Leon G. Otten and Max C. Caldwell's two-volume work called Sacred Truths of the Doctrine and Covenants, Stephen C. Harper's Making Sense of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Doctrine and Covenants student manual, which is used for Religion 324 and 325 by the Church Educational System, Stephen E. Robinson and H. Dean Garrett's A Commentary on the Doctrine and Covenants plays a prominent role in this podcast. Other valuable commentary, has come from Susan Easton Black in her book 400 Questions and Answers about the Doctrine and Covenants. I also want to acknowledge the book by Daniel Ludlow called A Companion to Your Study of the Doctrine and Covenants. And finally, valuable additional historical views have been offered from the book Saints, The Story of the Church of Jesus Christ in the Latter Days, and from a book that is made available in the Church's Gospel Library called Joseph Smith's Revelations, A Doctrine and Covenants Study Companion, from the Joseph Smith papers parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast as from time to time do my own thoughts and writings for them and any errors that you find in them I of course am solely responsible I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story and mortality I have found and hope that you have too that carefully studying the Word and this year in particular in the Doctrine and Covenants has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author even the Lord Jesus Christ I offer my personal witness that his attention is fixed upon us he delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know him better so Have a wonderful day. Keep in touch. You can find me at barryhillam.com. And thank you for listening.